What Not the Podcast, Lent Up Early. Pastor Wolfmuller here on April the 4th, year of our Lord, 2022. First Monday of Passion Tide, last two weeks of Lent. This intense devotion where we consider the suffering of Jesus. Here's a Bible study on the mockery that Jesus received on the cross from Psalm 22 and uh, looking at Matthew 27. And also a nice question about the language we use to describe the Lord's Supper. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Here's a little devotion looking at the suffering of Jesus. Uh, For that, we especially look at Psalm 22. But I'm thinking this morning about the mockery that Jesus receives from the cross. Um as he hangs there suffering for six hours and the crowds walk by. This is prophesied in Psalm 22. It's amazing to me that, well, you know, because I grew up um, with the sage wisdom, uh, sticks and stones can break your bones, but words will never hurt me. And that's just not true. It's the words that are doing the wounding here So Psalm 22, I'll pick up with verse 7, but looking especially at verse 8, it says, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. There's a, and then it follows verse 9, another yet, like verse 3, yet you are holy, yet you are he who took me from the womb. There's this, kind of astonishment in Psalm 22 that because Jesus knows the goodness of God and he knows how bad he's suffering and he just can't fit the two together. Our fathers trusted you. They trusted you, delivered them to you. They cried, were rescued. I'm a worm, not a man. Verses four, five, six. Maybe we'll do some more on Psalm 22 another day because I want to look at the gospels. But uh, amazing thing to see how the suffering of Jesus is magnified because it's happening Uh, in public, in a crowd. In fact, I mean, maybe to stick with Psalm 22 for just a minute, many bulls encompass me, that's verse 12. There's these enemies surrounding him, and then his physical suffering, my bones are out of joint, but then dogs encompass me. The fact that he's surrounded, I count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. There's that Jesus is crucified in the middle of a crowd. Now, this is to be contrasted with the deliverance that happens in the middle of verse 21, and then the Lord putting Jesus in the midst of the congregation, surrounding by those who believe, verse 22. But anyway, turning now to, let's see, where are we? Matthew 27. Those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Uh, And then, likewise, the chief priests, mocking what the scribes and elders said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the King of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the criminal hang with him, blasphemed, saying, 
If you are the Christ, save yourself and us, Luke 23. There's so much irony in this mockery. I mean, it, I don't know if it's a beautiful or a particularly ugly kind of irony, I, but he, okay, so first, that the people are using the same temptation that the devil used. Remember how when Jesus was baptized, God the Father spoke from heaven and said, you are my beloved son. And then the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness, and then the devil tempted, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God. So that the devil was attacking that promise that God the Father had given to the Son in baptism. The Psalm 2 promise, you are my Son. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. But the people, and this is an amazing thing, just like the devil, want Jesus to use his power to serve himself make bread to assuage your hunger fall down and worship and avoid the cross but jesus never uses his power for himself he saved others let him save himself no this is the point he came to offer himself in order to save others jesus uses his divine power not for his own ends but to glorify God and to comfort sinners and save us. I, I think of that when we had the feeding of the 5,000 the other day. And I, I can't help but think that Jesus is, as he's dishing out the bread to 5,000 men plus women and children in the wilderness, that he sort of looks at the devil and says, look, I can do it. I just won't do it. For myself, I'll go hungry. The people can eat. I'll be afflicted so that the people can be delivered. I'll be forsaken so that I can say, I'll never leave you or forsake you to my people. I'll bear the wrath of God and the shame so that my people can live forever in glory and righteousness and peace. If he is the king of Israel, they said, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. But he is the king of Israel as he hangs there, lifted up from the earth, crowned with thorns. This is the kingdom he came to establish, the kingdom not of power, but the kingdom of salvation. So God be praised. He trusted in God, and God used him, our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver us. Here's a question from Jay about the Lord's Supper. Uh, hello, Pastor Wolfmuller. I really enjoy the work you do, especially as American Christianity failed. I've really come recently come out of American evangelicalism into Lutheranism and found that your book allowed me to articulate a lot of the problems I felt while within it, but wasn't able to describe. Cool, Jay. Uh, during the uh, during and now following my confirmation, I've been studying the Book of Concord and I have a question. Our church has confessed that Christ is truly and actually present with the bread and the wine, and the doctrine of the sacramental union seems to allow us to say 
that the bread is Christ's body and the wine is blood. My question is, can we use the language of transformation as Lutherans to talk about the presence, as in saying the bread is transformed into the body? Does the sacramental union allow us to do that without affirming transubstantiation? It seems that a good deal of the fathers, such as Cyril of Jerusalem and Ambrose, for instance, talk about a transformation of some kind occurring of bread and wine into body and blood. The bread and the wine of the Eucharist, oh, quote, this is Cyril from, uh, let's see, Cyril of Jerusalem, Catechetical Lectures, 197, quote, the bread and the wine of the Eucharist before the holy invocation of the adorable Trinity were simple bread and wine. But the invocation having been made, the bread becomes the body of Christ and the wine the blood of Christ. Also, Ambrose on the Mysteries, Book 9, Chapter 52, says, Shall not the word of Christ have power to change the nature of the elements? Uh, the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 10, Paragraphs 15 to 56, two sources are quoted which seem explicitly to speak of transformation of the bread into the body. I'm, gonna, I'm interested in those sources. Hold on a second. Let me. Uh, this is kind of a cool section. This is where Melanchthon is... Uh, talking about how not only the Roman Catholic Church affirmed the bodily presence of Christ, but also the Greek Church believes it and previously affirmed it. And he quotes Vulgarius, and then he goes back to, we had already mentioned Cyril on John 15, and it, very interesting that Melanchthon breaks into Greek uh, in his uh, defense of the Augsburg Confession here, and he quotes Cyril in Greek, which is kind of cool. Uh, let's see, Valer I'll give you the Valerius quote. It says, the bread is not a mere figure, figure, but is truly changed into flesh. Uh, and that's, uh, um, that's a, that's a quote from this, uh, vulgarious. Uh, and I think the Cyril quote is pretty close to the same that we had before. Okay. Uh, Jay continues, Luther in the section on the sacrament of the altar and the large catechism also makes a statement about how the sacrament rests on the word and that no man or angel can make the bread become the body, this also seems to refer to some sort of transformation, at least on the face of it, unless I'm reading it incorrectly. How do we understand these statements? Can we speak of transformation like they do, or do we have to use different language? Thanks and sorry for the long message. Jay, hey, uh, no problem for the long message. I appreciate that you're doing this work and digging into it. That's what it's all about, Jay, by the way. And for those of you listening, this to, to be tracking this stuff down, to be asking a question and then to be listening carefully to the words that are being used in the scriptures and in our Lutheran confessions and to pay attention how they're bringing across the ancient fathers of the church. This is fantastic. This is when I talk about YouTube theologians or uh, that they're, all Christians are theologians, that we have a joy in theology. This is this is it. That, that these things are important to us and, and, that we're, and that we're tracking them down and that we're paying attention to the words. It's just really wonderful. So don't apologize. Uh, although, if the rest of you want to ask questions, if you write shorter ones, that's okay too. Uh, now, can we use the language of transformation? Here's the key thing. The bread that we bring to the altar is just bread. And the wine that we bring to the altar is normal wine. And then the words of institution are spoken. And then I can hold that bread in my hand and say, what is this? And the answer is the body of Jesus. And I can hold this cup in front of you and say, what is this? The blood of Jesus. We've used the language in the Lutheran church of in, with, and under to describe the sacramental union, that the body of Jesus is in, with, and under the bread, 
or that the blood of Jesus is in, with, and under the wine. But our Lutheran fathers make pains, especially this is in the formula of Concord, to say that when we say in, with, and under, what we mean is is, because that's the word that Jesus used. This is my body. Now the bread and the wine remain. So the presence of the body of Christ does not displace the bread and the wine. And that's why we get this language of in, with, and under. Because the thing that we're eating is both bread and the body of Jesus. It is both wine and the blood of Jesus. So the danger um, of displacement is what the Catholic Church was wrestling with when um, they uh, developed their doctrine of transubstantiation. Now, transubstantiation has to do with the Aristotelian distinction between accidents and essence. And this is, now don't get bored with this because this is actually pretty important. And the Lutherans like to use this distinction. It's actually a helpful distinction. Uh, Here's how it was taught to me, and I think this sticks with me. If I said, how would you describe a fox? And you'd say, well, it's a fox is a furry little creature with a pointed nose and uh, it's quick and it's got red hair, jumps around, eats chickens. Well, what if I took a fox? This is just a thought experiment. I don't want to actually do this. Although, you want to know who hates foxes? Dr. Kleinig. I was with him one time and we saw a fox and I thought he was going to have a heart attack because his blood pressure went crazy. And he, and he, he went on a diatribe about how foxes are demonic because they don't eat to satisfy their own hunger. They just eat to destroy. They'll get into a hen house and eat and, dis- and kill all the chickens, even though they only want to eat one of them. Anyhow. Okay, so let's take a, but I'm not going to really destroy any foxes. I'm going to take an imaginary fox and I'm going to shave its hair. I'm going to paint it purple. I want to sedate it. I want to put a clown nose on it. So it no longer has any of those things that I indicated. It's no longer red haired. It's no longer pointy nosed. It's no longer quick. Is it still a fox? Well, yeah, in fact, it is. You can chop it up and it's still a fox grind it down, it's still, there's something essential about the foxiness of the fox that is completely separate from the accidents that we would use to describe a fox. So the um, the difference between accidents and essence, or accidents and substance, is an Aristotelian category that the Roman Church used to discuss the Lord's Supper. Now, just as a aside, again, this category, it's helpful for us to have that category. And the Lutherans talk about it uh, in a lot of other places. In fact, it's one of these key questions when it comes to humanity. Are we essentially sinful or accidentally sinful? And the answer is accidental. Sin is not essential to the human nature. It's an accident. It's something that clings to our nature, but it's not our nature. Anyhow, anyhow. Catholic Church says that in the Lord's Supper, when the bell is rung or the words are spoken or at some point there, that the ex, that the essence of the bread becomes the essence of the body of Christ and the essence of the wine becomes the essence of the, of the blood of Christ or the substance. And while the accidents remain, the accidents of bread and wine. So they get their doctrine of transubstantiation, the change of substance. Uh, and that's why the Lutherans come along. They basically, I mean, the Lutheran response to that was, we don't need Aristotle to understand Jesus. He says, this is my body. And we say, okay, fine. 
It's his body. How? how? We don't understand. We'll invent a word, the sacramental union, to describe it. Now, is there a change? And this was kind of clearly demonstrated, Jay, in the text that you that you quoted. And the answer is, yes, absolutely. There's a change from plain bread to the body and plain wine to the blood. Can we call that a transformation? I think so, yes, as long as we're not trying to bring in some sort of philosophy. So we don't have a transubstantio, but we have a transformo. We have a change of form because in some ways the form also remains. It's just, I mean, both technically and casually. But we have a change so that the thing that I'm eating when I come to the Lord's Supper is the body of Jesus. That's what I am to know and to confess. And and the words spoken, the words of institution, are what affect that change by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the words don't have that power to change things by themselves, but the Holy Spirit uses the word to bring the body and bring the blood of Jesus to the bread and wine so that the thing that we eat is the body and the thing that we drink is the blood of Jesus. And the reason that we eat and drink these things is for the forgiveness of sins. So Jay, great question, and I hope that helps answer it. We've got YouTube theologians. What do we got? We got to do podcast theologians. Hey, you guys are podcast theologians now. Uh, This is great. We all are theologians. To be a theologian means to concern ourselves with the word of God, and there's nothing better. I mean, this is our treasure. This is our life. Uh, So God be praised that uh, you take the time to meditate on the Lord's word uh, with me. This, I hope, is a good supplement to your own thinking and writing. We got to read the Bible with a pencil. We got to be looking for the connections. There's so much there. There's so much joy there. Uh, so much peace. Uh, by the way, here's a good uh, spiritual discipline that's not often talked about. I think that every Christian should have a notebook of questions for my pastor. <laughs> and so when you read the Bible, you're just taking notes. Here's questions for the pastor. And uh, once a month, you take the guy out for a cup of coffee and say, let's just go over some of these questions, pastor. It's great. Uh, you'll notice that some of those questions will answer themselves, and you'll start to notice patterns in the questions that you that you ask. I mean, sometimes it's just like, where was Golgotha? Or um, uh, why does it say in one place that both, both thieves mocked Jesus, but in another place only one did and the other converted? You know, so, so some uh, kind of logistical or geographical or vocab questions. But then you'll start to think theologically about certain things as well. Like, what does it mean that, why do the Gospels emphasize the women who were witnessing the crucifixion? Or what's going on with Pilate and uh, what he writes, behold the king of the Jews? Or uh, why is the accusations discussed by the Jewish council so different than the accusations that they bring to Pilate? Or or whatever. So so you start to notice your own uh, questions changing. Um, this is really quite wonderful as well. And and especially as we wrestle through these things personally, can I pray Psalm 22? Can I say, God, why have you forsaken me? Is it is it is it given for me to pray, or does it just belong to Jesus? Uh, this is a these are great great questions. So write these things down. This will be helpful for uh, for you too uh, as you uh, continue in your theological growth.
God be praised uh, for that. Let's see, what do we want to plug today? I can't think of anything. I hope you uh, went to your pastor's Bible class last week. If you don't have a pastor in a church, then there's a find a church button on the website, wolfmuller.co. All the other theology is there, including the Wednesday whatnot, which if I get around to it in the next couple of days, I'm going to be giving away a free book. So if you're not signed up for Wednesday whatnot, I try to give away a free book of your choice from the books that we've published on Lulu uh, every month. So go sign up now. Maybe that'll put you in the in for the drawing. That's a lot of fun. Uh, that should be enough. Ugh, have a great day. Uh, may God, the, the Lord Jesus, continue to bless you with the richness of his word and the kindness of his promises and his presence. His promise he'll never leave you or forsake you. God's peace be with you. <laughs>